Lord, we ask this morning for your help. We ask us, Lord, that uh, uh, what we are not, Lord, that you would make us. What we know not, Lord, that you would reveal to us. And, um, Lord, that you would allow me as your messenger to simply be the mouthpiece for your truth to, to impact the hearts of men this morning. And, Lord, we, we are desperate people, and we need counsel. We need guidance from you. And, Lord, this morning, would you give us strength from your word, comfort from your word, conviction that would come through your word. And, Lord, would we ultimately be moved to be more conformed to your son, Jesus Christ. As a result of our time together, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We are in the middle of what are called the kingdom parables in Mark's gospel. Now, the other gospels may have longer sections of kingdom parables, but Mark here has brought four for us to consider. And uh, last week we looked at one, and this week we're going to look at three. And uh, one of the things, though, that, that we need to kind of hone in on is to ask ourselves the question, what is the kingdom of God? How do we describe it? What does it look like? And I like this definition. I think it's helpful just to kind of uh, give some simplicity to it. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule. So with the coming of Christ, we have that ultimate king, the Messiah. If you remember when we were going through 1 Samuel, David was that one who then would be the king. And in 2 Samuel, he establishes this kingdom on the earth where he is king. But all that foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah who would then come to be king and would establish his throne on the earth. Now, the reality is that Jesus has come, but he also departed. But we know that he's coming again. And so when he comes again, he comes to the earth where this kingdom then will be realized in a more physical way. Right now, we are, if we're believers, citizens of the kingdom. There's a spiritual reality, but we have not realized the physical presence of the kingdom of God on the earth in that sense. And so a lot of times uh, we talk about our present situation as the already but not yet. We're already citizens of the kingdom, but that kingdom hasn't fully been realized yet. But we have the confidence and the certainty of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so there is a sense in which then, as part of the church, we're part of the kingdom. And that kingdom is yet to, to be fulfilled uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Now, I want you to notice verses 33 and 34, because last week I identified to you that Jesus was speaking to a very large crowd, and last week's section was the parable of the soils, which goes from verse 1 through verse 20, and the first probably nine verses or so is directed at the crowds, and then Jesus comes with his disciples, and there were some other people that were with them, but there was a smaller private group, and so we may be tempted to say, well, what's happening next is just the smaller private group. But as we, as we actually read the text here, at the end of this section, we will notice that the group actually is back again with the crowds. Look at verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So the implication there is that there was a larger crowd, and then he took time to explain things with his disciples. That seemed to be a pattern that Jesus uh, functioned with. 
And that's what we have here. So uh, as we come to this section, just understand that the picture here of Jesus continuing this ministry of speaking to the masses in parables, but then gathering together with his disciples uh, to explain uh, what those parables mean. But unfortunately, even the disciples still didn't quite get it. And the reality is, it isn't until Jesus Christ is resurrected that God opens a light, so to speak, in their heart, and they fully now understand, aha, this is what he means. This is what he was saying. Now, if the hearts that are the good soil in the parable of the soils are truly receiving the word of God sown in their hearts then they are going to have the ability to to understand because of the Holy Spirit's ministry in their heart and to comprehend the secrets or the truths of the kingdom of God. And so what we have here are three parables really to encourage followers and to demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like. And so there's a sense of of a big picture going on. This This is big scope truth that Jesus is presenting, but that big scope truth is also there to encourage and to direct us. And so this morning, uh, I've identified the, the proposition or the kind of the thread that runs through all this is this, the divine certainty about the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, I know that you know, if you, if you, you constantly are, are you know, or listen to CNN or Fox News or talk radio or things like that. There's a lot of crazy stuff that's going on, not only in our country, but around the world. And it's easy to get caught up with the things that are happening in the world as far as nations are concerned. But listen, as believers, we have a different paradigm. We have a different lens. And J.D. kind of alluded to that in his, in his prayer this morning. The fact that, that we are Christians, the fact that we're followers of Christ means that we look at things not just from a political perspective, we look at things from a kingdom perspective. We look at that through the lens of what, what God has called us to do and to be in the context of the chaos that we are living around. And so this morning we have these three parables that are going to help us uh, to, to just be certain about the nature of the kingdom of God. So this section, as I mentioned, is a continuation of the kingdom parables, but we have three of them, the parable of the lamp, the parable of the seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. And, but there's a section here, if you look at verses 24 and 25, what we have here is Jesus laying it on thick once again, kind of reflecting what was already said in the parable of the soils that I think we need to make sure that we pay attention to and, and kind of help us as a backdrop to these parables. It's a reminder of what we studied last time. Remember the, the four soils representing four hearts that receive and respond to the gospel? There was the, the, the hard heart from the, 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 the seed that was found on the path. There's the shallow heart um, that, that represents this, this rocky soil. The, 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 the seed comes, but it doesn't take root. There's the congested heart, or I called it the worldly heart last week, where that seed fell among thorns and weeds. But there was also the receptive heart. And the thing that we realized last week is that there's only one heart that truly receives. There's only one heart that actually bears fruit. And that is that, that heart, the good soil where the seed comes and it plants, uh, and it's planted and, and the roots go deep and it, it bears fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. 
But now look at verse 24 and 25. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and, it, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So what Jesus is telling them is to the degree that you hear the word of God and you receive it, um, the result of that will be you'll be given more. More will be measured out to you. But if you are given the seed and you reject it or you neglect it, then even what you have will be taken away. And we find this principle just in life. Just think about, about study. If you apply yourself, you put more into your studies, you will get more out of them. There is great freedom in a discipline that comes by mastering that discipline. So the more you study, the free you are to, to carry out that discipline. It's true in, in personal relationships. You put time and effort into relationships, then that, 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 will, that will create a response among those people. So if you're angry and ornery and you go into work just kind of like with a chip on your shoulder, why would you expect people to treat you kindly? You're coming in with an attitude that is going to be reciprocated by people. But if you come in and you're, you're, you're happy, you're joyful, you're encouraging, you're caring, that is likely going to be reciprocated by the people. The, the, the point here is this. The more that you're given, the more that you receive, the more you're going to be given. And so this is counsel for us here to listen and to hear. Because throughout this chapter is this idea of hearing what God says. Hearing the truth of the word. And so we saw that in the parable of the soils, but now we're going to see it taking on a little different shape as it relates to the kingdom of God in particular. And friends, let's remind ourselves that this is not just kind of a general principle. This is life and death stuff. You're either in the kingdom or you're not. You're either a follower of Christ or you're not. You either have a heart that is receiving the word and bearing fruit or you're not bearing fruit. And friends, that is, that is a stark situation, and Jesus is giving us these parables to reinforce the fact that you need to listen and you need to hear about the kingdom and respond by receiving the truth that is that seed in your heart and responding in a way that would truly bring about your conversion or bring about life. And so this morning, let's begin with the first parable. The power of the light here. Let's read verse 21 through 23. And he said to them, Is the lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now I want us to consider this. There is... Imagine if you were hearing this in, in a modern-day context, and Jesus was talking about these things. You might respond in a modern vernacular with a three-letter word, and it's the word, duh, right? I mean, when you take a light out and you're putting it in your room, and the purpose of that light is to light up the room, you don't put it under a bushel, you don't put it under a bed, you put it somewhere up high, where it can actually disseminate that light. And they would either do it on a stand, or sometimes they would have little crevices in the wall where they would actually have these, these lamps hooked up. They're little 
small little pieces of pottery, bowls, so to speak, shaped, usually pinched at one end, that would have oil in them, and then it would have a wick. And I actually have a few in my office um, that are pretty ancient, but they're, they're really beautiful. But just, you know, they're, they're, they're lamps, and they give off a lot of light. And it's amazing how much just even one match can light up a room that was once dark. Okay, But you don't hide that under some kind of bed. So these are the equivalent of our ceiling lights or our table lamps. Now, what's not always evident is that this passage is not talking about a lamp. And you'll have to bear with me here a little bit because in the Greek text, this word lamp has in front of it an article. And that article means we're not talking about a lamp, we're talking about the lamp. And there's a big difference between a lamp and the lamp or the light. And Jesus here is speaking, and he's speaking about himself. Listen to John 1, 5 through 10. The light, talking about Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. His name, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That light, oh sorry, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. I mean, it's just an incredible picture here of Jesus as this light. And so Jesus now is speaking about himself. Let's just read this in light of that expression. And he said to them, is the lamp or the light brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed or on a stand? See, Jesus is speaking about himself being this light. And the reality and the truth is that Jesus, the light, will shine brightly. This is one truth about the kingdom of God. The light will shine. So, First of all, let's just think about it in these terms. Christ and the gospel are meant to be seen. They're not meant to be put under a bed or under a bushel. Jesus came to shine. Now, there's a sense in which right now he is somewhat veiled in the context of this story here. He's somewhat veiled, and and the disciples are still trying to struggle to figure out who he is. But Jesus ultimately has come to be seen. His gospel has, has come to be broadcast and to be heard and to be received. Now, there are times when it's dangerous to speak the truth. There are times when speaking the truth about Christ will be the quickest way to persecution and suffering. But the Christian, the true Christian, will stand um, in that truth of Christ and the gospel in the face of all of that persecution. Now, next, next month, we're going to kind of, just like probably lots of churches uh, around the world, are going to just take some time to focus on the Reformation just in our, in, our, in our times together, maybe outside of the actual ministry of the Word. Um, but one of the key players in the Reformation is a man by the name of Martin Luther. And you probably know Martin Luther because of his 95 Theses. Um, and this year, of course, is the 500th year of the Reformation. And what's, what's interesting and significant about Martin Luther is that Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. And he, he saw something going on in the church that just 
horrified him. That the, the church was selling these things called indulgences because the Catholic church at that point in time believed in this place called purgatory. And when you die, you went to purgatory, and what happened is then people could pay for indulgences, which were prayers that the priests would give so that they would pay down, so to speak, the punishments and the suffering that they would have in purgatory before they went to heaven. And it was all a money-making scheme, ultimately, is what Luther was saying. And so his 95 theses were to counter that and some other things, but it was to counter that primarily. Now, one of the things that Luther did, though, is that Luther was very, very careful to choose a day to speak against this practice and to post his 95 Theses. It was All Saints Day, a day when the church would be full, big celebration. But not only that, it was the anniversary of that particular church in Wittenberg, so there were going to be lots of people. And in that context, the door of the church tended to be like the, the bulletin board. So he knew that when people were coming in, that his 95 Theses would be seen. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is this, that Luther didn't just kind of like casually one day say, you know what, today's the day, I'm just going to go nail these up. No, he thought about what he was doing. He thought about why he was doing what he was doing, and he was confronting the error in the church that he was a part of by posting these theses there. Because Christ and the gospel was being eclipsed by this practice of indulgences. And he could not stand it. Now, a prudent man would say, keep your thoughts to yourself. If he were a, a safety uh, kind of a person, um, he would have chosen maybe a day that was going to be kind of lighter and that kind of stuff. But, but Luther was driven by the truth, by Christ and his gospel, and he was not willing to sit around and keep the distortion of the truth to himself. Now listen, I realize we're not all Martin Luther here, and I'm glad for that, by the way, if you know anything about him. He was a little pugnacious. But God used him in that moment for that time. We're not Luther. We're not people who may, might say, have our vocation in the gospel ministry. But we can still learn from the fact that he was a man who was committed to the truth. We can learn from his example. And we need to be careful about how we proceed, but we can also be people who are standing for the truth so that Christ will be seen. Secondly, um, our Christianity is meant to be seen. We are supposed to be Christians. Now the question is, what does that look like? How is that supposed to take place? Again, during the context when Christ was ministering, a few years after that, uh, of course, we know that the, the Rome was in control, and there was this, this emperor worship that was part of the structure of that society. Rome was actually very, very tolerant, very open to other religions being practiced under their umbrella. But all they required was that once a year, you would go and you would make sacrifice to the emperor of Rome. And you would go offer sacrifice and you would say Caesar is Lord and you'd get a certificate. Now most Christians would not be able to do that by means of conscience. And as a result of that and because also that the truth of, of God's word they ended up not doing that because they didn't recognize Caesar as Lord. Who did they recognize as Lord? 
Jesus is Lord. And so this whole idea of Jesus as Lord is not just kind of like some concept that came out of nowhere. It was a concept that was a rallying call for Christians to stand up for who they saw to be their master, to be their Messiah. They were identifying as Christians. Now, I realize we may not necessarily be in the same kind of context. We are not forced to go do that kind of stuff. But the reality is, one day, maybe we will have to do something like that. Now, you might say, why didn't they just go through the motions? Just kind of like, you know, exercise their unbelief in, in Caesar as Lord and just go through and just, you know, make it easier for their family and persecution wouldn't come. They couldn't. They wouldn't because to do so would be to deny that Jesus is their Lord. You can't have two lords. There's only one Lord. There's only one master. There's only one Messiah. So we as Christians are meant to be seen. Now hear this. By that, I do not mean that we all go out and get t-shirts that say, Jesus rocks. Or that we get bumper stickers for our cars that say, you know, you know Jesus is my co-pilot or whatever it might be. Somehow Christian culture has stopped being vocal and stopped maybe considering living out the gospel and settled for things like t-shirts and bumper stickers. Now listen, I've driven behind lots of people with Christian bumper stickers. And I'm not convinced necessarily that they're followers of Christ by how they drive. I've seen people with t-shirts on doing things saying to myself, listen, your t-shirt betrays your behavior here. What it means to follow Christ in this sense, to be seen, is something far different than that. I, I think I've shared this with you before, but there was a, a Christian man that was in a church that I was pastoring, and uh, he, he really wanted to be an evangelist at work. And so I asked him one day, you know, so how's it going? He says, it's not going well at all. Um, you know, I try and be a witness there, but it's just, it's, it's just a real struggle. I said, well, what's your approach? What are you doing? He says, well, I have this, this black lunchbox, kind of a metal thing that opens up, you know, and he says, on one side of it, in, in white paint, I have the word repent. And on the other side, I have John 3, 16. And he says, I want everyone to know that I'm a Christian. So he's literally walking into his workplace with a lunchbox that says, repent, in John 3, 16. I said, well, no wonder people aren't responding to you. You can't just limit your gospel witness to something that's written on a lunchbox. How does this take place? I want you to, to think through this with me. What it means for Christ to be seen is that we are eagerly and faithfully bringing our Christianity into all that we do. That means that our conscience is fashioned and shaped by the Word of God. It means that our behavior is tempered by what we know God would want us to do that our speech is gentle even in times when we're being treated with disrespect or in any abusive way, that our manner is not one of stepping on others, but as people driven by the reality that Christ has put us in this context to shine his light. In other words, I'm just simply saying this, 
The kingdom of God that, that he's called us to live in and the way we live it out, again, is not by these external things, but it's living out Christ in the context of where you live, in the context of your job. It's the way you think. It's the way you interact. It's the, it's the way you formulate your ideas and your opinions that are based on God's word but are tempered because you're around people who are unbelievers. And the problem is sometimes that we, th- you know, we kind of behave in the context of the ungodly like we behave in the context of the godly or the church. You know, we, we fight for things that we think are important in church. and We, th- we go into a public set- setting and we're trying to fight the same way. And they have no framework to understand what we're talking about. So we got to live it out carefully, patiently, living, uh, acting, and thinking, and behaving, and speaking, and, and being concerned, all that kind of stuff is the, 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 the light of Christ living in us and living out of us. He is seen. He is shining his light through us as we live out the gospel and share that gospel. But still, the darkness doesn't like the light. And the darkness um, doesn't like the light because the light exposes the darkness of man's heart. So some will listen. Some will believe. Some will be like that good soil and they'll hear the gospel. They'll, they'll receive it and they'll bear fruit. Here's how Paul the Apostle expressed it. Speaking about the gospel not just being for the Jews but also for the Gentiles. This is Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 8 through 10. Listen to what he says. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Paul saw himself as this mediator of one who was proclaiming this this mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the rulers, to those who are in heavenly places. That sounds really, really, you know, spiritual and kind of ethereal, but it's actually just talking about those who are living in that world at that point in time. And it's the gospel and it's the living of it out in that context that brings about Jesus shining. Now, there's a little qualifier that I need to make here. The reality is that whether you are obedient or disobedient to Christ and his word, um, it doesn't really matter because the light of Christ will continue to shine. In other words, Jesus is not dependent on your obedience or disobedience for his light to shine, for him to shine in the context of unbelief. Now, that's helpful for us because we fail miserably, right? And we are disobedient so much. Now that we, we can also presume upon that and not care about it. So your failure, your sinfulness, your apathy won't stop God's plan from unfolding. But God welcomes us into his ongoing providence of his unfolding plan. He delights to work with his children as they use their gifts to glorify him in their daily lives. So think about this reality. We get to be a part of what God is doing in building his kingdom. We, we get to partner with God in that sense. Now notice verse 22. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret 
except to come to light. If anyone hears uh, or has ears to hear, let him hear. So with the coming of Christ to the earth, the kingdom is being ushered in. Christ has entered into this world to be made manifest, which literally means to be put on display or to be made known. And Christ has, has entered into this world to bring the secret to light. Remember what the light does when it comes. It exposes and reveals the hearts of men, but it also does this. It exposes and reveals the character of God to the hearts of men. Well, the light shines. The light gives understanding. The light exposes and, and, and reveals. So, so God here brings clarity and certainty. The light of Christ will be on display. And that is ultimately true as Jesus hung on the cross. He hung on a cross. He was put on display. He was paraded before all men for all to see. The power of the light. Don't underestimate it. Secondly, the power of the word. Jesus uses the same kind of uh, metaphor, but changes it a little bit as far as its focus from what he used when he was talking about the parable of the soils. In this particular one, um, it's talking about the seed and the power that is actually in the seed. Let's look, look at verse 26 through verse 29. And the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces it, uh, it by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, and at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now here's just kind of a summary of what's going on there. He wants us to see that we plant seeds and then we go to bed. And day after day, after having planted that seed, we go to bed. We go about our daily business, and we don't look at the seed. We don't think about the seed. Now, I remember when I was young, I think we had a, a, an apple, and I was asking my mom, you know, what if I put the seed in the ground? Well, she said, well, it will grow. So I was like, okay. So I went and buried it in the ground, you know. And the, the next day, I got up, and I wanted to see if anything had happened. So I was digging it up to see if anything had happened, right? That's not how it works. What we do is we, we, we sow the seed. The seed is planted, and we, we go on about our business, and the rains come, and the sun shines, and over a course of time, it produces a crop, a crop that is ready to be harvested. It's the miracle of nature, God's creation. Now, there's three principles that I want you to see here. Principle number one. The growth of the kingdom of God is not due to man's ingenuity. Now, friends, we've got to get this. We have to see this. Man can sow in obedience to Christ's command, but man cannot somehow create the kingdom of God. You and I do not usher in the kingdom of God. We can watch, we can observe, we can serve but the kingdom of God grows apart from man's interference, either good or bad. So in the realm of Christianity, there are always new trends 
new fads, new approaches to ministries, new gimmicks to somehow build the kingdom or somehow move the kingdom along. Oh, how many times churches want to help God out by creating converts or somehow manipulating man's emotions to bring about decisions. But hear this, and this might offend you, God doesn't need your help. Let me say that again. God doesn't need your help. Let me just be personal about this. All right, the, the job of standing before you and, and preaching a text is such that my job is to make sure I get the text to you, explain it, illustrate it, press it home in such a way that, that hopefully it's right. My job is not to say, God, you didn't quite say it as clear as you could have. Let me, let me throw this illustration on because I think, I think I might have a better edge on helping these people understand this. No, God doesn't need my help. God is God. He is wise. He has revealed himself. God doesn't need my help evangelistically. Now, I know you can go into some place and you can say, hey, let's, let's think about the strategy that we're going to use to get here. I'm not talking so much about that, but I'm talking here so much about just ways in which we think that we can trick people into the kingdom. The bait and switch that often happens in the context of ministry. And it's been my experience, as I've been pastoring for 30 years now, that those fads come and go, that those gimmicks bring more harm to the body of Christ and lead people away from obedience to God's word, that new approaches to ministry often produce a shallow or distorted gospel. And what ultimately we need to remember is what prevails is the simple and faithful preaching of God's word, teaching of God's word, ministering of God's word, the, the, the living out of that word in the context of community and the providence of God and the sovereignty of God that are at work in the lives of people, bringing them to the cross. It's so easy to think that our ingenuity somehow moves the kingdom along. <laughs> We are simply servants being used by God, and he is the one that is moving his kingdom along. You understand that? Secondly, the growth of the kingdom of God is inherent in the seed. There is a, a mystery to life in the seed. You go to, you know, go to Osh or Home Depot or wherever you might, you might get your, your, you know, your vegetable seeds and get yourself a tomato seed. And you're going to say, I'm going to plant some tomatoes. And so you, you go home and you, you put them in the shed. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do it on Saturday. And something happens and you forget about those seeds. Eight years later, you come back. You have this little packet of tomato seeds. They've been sitting there for eight years untouched. You can take them outside. You can open the packet. You can plant them in the soil. And guess what happens? A tomato plant <laughs> will grow out of that seed. How can life be in that seed and yet nothing happen until eight years later I put it in the ground? It's the miracle of nature that God has created. That's the point here. Life is inherent in the seed. 
The word of God will produce growth according to God's design and according to God's timetable. That's why when we read a verse of scripture like Isaiah 55:11, it just it makes sense. It says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. This is God speaking, it shall not return to me empty. Hear this, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, certainly there's a specific kind of focus as to how this verse is being used, but the point is that when God's word is spoken, when God's word is given out, it will accomplish what it's set out to accomplish. This this growth of the kingdom is inherent in this seed. So even though we might not see any growth, God has planted the power of growth in that seed planted. The gospel will take root in God's way, according to God's plan, and according to God's timetable. Now, friends, that is encouraging because we don't often see the fruit. Now, as a pastor, I have had opportunities that every once in a while, God will peel back a little bit of a page and he'll show me some fruit in the lives of people. When I was going through a difficult time a few years ago, I get an email from a young man who was part of my youth group back in 19-something or other, back in the dark ages back then, right, who was just wanting to seek me out and just say thank you for laboring because now he's a pastor in a church in the New England area. And it was just, it was so encouraging because I hadn't heard from this guy for years. Every once in a while, God gives you a little little taste of the fruit, the impact of your life. Now, I'm speaking from a pastoral perspective, but that could be true for you. Every once in a while, God does that. But you you can be sure that it's not your ingenuity But it's the inherent power that God has put in the seed that actually bears fruit. Here's the third principle. The growth of the kingdom of God will culminate in a harvest. Friends, we must remember that the working of the reign of God in the world rarely, if ever, makes headlines. I mean, you don't usually read a tweet that says, Wow, there's been a huge harvest in such and such place. That's not usually what you read. Because usually what happens in the growth of the kingdom of God is it's happening, and and you don't see it happening. You don't know that it's happening, but it's the kingdom of God, and it is happening. Because that seed planted will produce a harvest eventually. So from the outside, it seems like nothing's going on. It's like... What are you doing? What are you involved in here? Nothing's taking place. There's no growth or fruit being produced, but all the time the seed is at work. Just wait, just wait, just wait, just wait. A harvest is coming. One person has said it this way. God draws straight with what looks to us to be crooked lines. Just think about that. God draws straight with what looks to us to be crooked lines. He knows what He's doing. So the growth of the kingdom may even be hidden to those on the inside, but we trust the realities that this parable teaches. The growth is hidden, but it will end with a harvest. Now, it ends with a harvest, and friends, when there's a harvest, there are two things that happen. The good fruit is gathered in, and the weeds and the tares are thrown on the fire. And there's a reminder here because the sickle that's being talked about here is not just the sickle of the 
harvest in the sense of the fruit being gathered. It's also the sickle of those weeds and those tares being gathered. There is ultimately a harvest where there will be a gathering of God's people and there will be a judgment of those who were not willing to hear the truth that Jesus was giving. Friends, that is something that we should consider. That is a daunting reality. The power of the word. Now let's move on to the power of the kingdom. The power of the kingdom. The kingdom ultimately will steadily grow. Verse 30 and following. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now to a a Jewish audience, two things from this parable would be clearly understood. First of all, the mustard seed being the, the smallest proverbial seed known to them at that point in time. The smallest possible thing. It's the smallness of the seed that is the focus here. So in our context, it might be like talking about, you know, protons and neutrons, but I think there's like even the smaller things now they're called quarks or something like that, right? It's always you're always finding something small. The point is it's so incredibly small. That's how it starts. But then there's this mustard plant that ultimately grows. And in the Old Testament context, it was not unusual for this picture of a tree to be used to describe an empire. You can just look at Daniel 10 or Daniel 4 or Ezekiel 17 to see some examples of that. And so in both of those contexts, there was an understanding of what Jesus was talking about here. So there's some lessons that flow out that I think are helpful for us here today. Number one, the kingdom of God has a small and seemingly insignificant beginning. Now let's just remember, Jesus came from humble beginnings, did he not? I mean, he he was born in a lowly manger in the small town of Bethlehem. He lived as a simple carpenter. I mean, he he was a day laborer, if you want to put it that way. He did begin his ministry at age 30. It lasted about three and a half years. He gained a following most of whom ultimately rejected him. He died a shameful, scandalous death on the cross, being mocked by most of the people that were around him. And he left behind a rabble of disciples. Doesn't seem like a good beginning, does it? But friends, things haven't changed much. God uses the small and seemingly insignificant of this world to carry on the mystery of the kingdom. He uses people like you and people like me. We are small. We're insignificant. I'm sorry, burst your bubble. I know that, but I'm bursting my own bubble too. We're just regular, run-of-the-mill people. And yet God uses us. He, he takes just, just kind of strange, funny-looking, um, mediocre people, to accomplish his purposes. Simple people, normal people, weak people, frail people to do his work. So when it comes to the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as small and insignificant. God's ways are not the ways of this world. The world just loves big, right? 
That's how the, it's how the world, you know, how, how people from the world choose a church, right? I want to go to a large church. Why? There's something about it being large. If it's large, it must be successful. It must be right. That's not how God works. Here you have this rabble group that Jesus ultimately leaves, and they're supposed to carry on this ministry? How in the world is that going to happen? Because the kingdom of God steadily grows, and it grows from small and insignificant people who really seem like nothing on this earth. So be, be careful, friends, that Somehow you think that your life is insignificant, that, that you are nothing, and there's no place that you have in the, the unfolding of the kingdom. In man's eyes, that may be true, but in God's eyes, it is considerably different. Secondly, the kingdom of God steadily grows to maturity. Look at verse 32. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. Uh, there's a point in time when, when this was a small plant, and it was, it was overshadowed by these other garden plants that were there. But over time, it continues to grow, and it continues to grow, and it continues to grow to the point that it is larger than any of those plants around it. I mean, all those plants, if they could, they'd be laughing at it. And look how small your seed is. You're not going to amount to anything, but over time, it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. Your hardships may come. Persecution may be present, setbacks may take place, but it continues to grow. The early church father, Tertullian, is known for this statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You think about that. What he's getting at there is this, that those who are martyred or killed for their belief in Christ, that they're planting seeds of witness and testimony to the gospel in the context in which they live. And God, through his providence, even when setbacks and persecutions and martyrdoms take place, is planting seeds in the hearts of men. So even when it seems daunting, even when it seems like the gospel is disappearing from a nation, God is still at work. His kingdom is still continuing. God promises will take place. What God plans will be realized. Opposition to the kingdom will not last. Hear this, friends. The king has come, and he reigns. Third principle. The kingdom of God is home for people from all tribes and nations. It says here at the end of verse 32. I'll read the whole thing. When it Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. I just want to just paint a little bit of picture here. that The birds that could come down and, and eat the mustard seed can destroy or devour that mustard seed are the very same birds that ultimately are perched in the protection of this mature mustard bush. That's what happened with a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. He was a man committed to putting out this rebellion and these heretics called Christians. And so he, he oversaw their their um, persecution. He, he oversaw their, their, their murder. 
And he did it with a passion, but one day, by God's grace, he came to find refuge in the branches of the kingdom of God. I just want you to think about that. And this story, this struggle, this spiritual phenomenon that I'm just bringing to your attention has been repeated again and again and again throughout the ages. Those who once opposed the gospel now embrace it. Those who once killed the messengers of the gospel are now full citizens of the kingdom of God. How does this happen? It's all part of God's plan. It's all part of his providential design. A few examples of that. You've heard the story of Jim Elliott and his four friends who went down to Ecuador and they had a, a passion for a particular group of people, Indians, called the Aqua Indians. And they planned their time. They, they prepared their opportunity, their encounter. They, they had a, a plane that came and, 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 and brought gifts to these people. And, and then they, they eventually landed and were there six days, and on the sixth day, they had interacted with some, some, a lady and a man from, from the tribe, and some ladies came into the river to, 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 to cross over to where they were, and they were excited, so the men went out to go meet the ladies, and what happened next was the tribe came out and slaughtered them. And also part of the story is that the guys actually had weapons with them to protect them, but they didn't use them. And I say, well, what has that got to do with anything? Well, over time, the wives of those men continued to seek to build a relationship. And in so doing, did that. They built a relationship, but they were able to exercise forgiveness. And as a result of that, this tribe, many of them were converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And hear this. And today... There is a bird of the Aqua tribe now sitting in the branches of the kingdom of God. You see how beautiful that is? There's another uh, well-known missionary by the name of John Patton. Back in 1839, there were two missionaries sent out by the London Missionary Society, John Williams and James Harris, and they wanted to take the gospel to these, these tribes that were in the place called the New Hebrides. It's a, it's a whole gathering of islands um, that are now, it's now called Vanatal. But literally, they got off the boat, went onto shore, and within seconds, they were bludgeoned to death by these people, and they were carried off and eaten. And John Patton, uh, 48 years later, wrote this. Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of the martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. He had a passion to reach these island people, but everyone was saying to him, don't go, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And they had good, good motivation for that counsel, because others that went were eaten by cannibals. But in 1858, Patton would lead uh, or land on one of those islands with his wife and his newborn son. And, and, and the, the, the biography just reminds us that they lived in constant terror. Wondering whether that day was the day they were going to die. And in God's providence, his wife and his son both die of a fever a year later. And he's driven off the island. And for four years, he goes back to the United Kingdom and Scotland with the idea that I am going back. He remarries, he goes back, and ultimately God breaks through. And if you were to go to that area of the world today, you will find Presbyterian churches all over the place. Why? 
because a man with a heart for sharing the gospel continued to take the gospel, continued to do the difficult thing, but God broke through that particular witness. And now we have the tribes of the New Hebrides sitting as birds perched in the kingdom of God. See, you get the picture here. God will grow his kingdom. God does grow his kingdom steadily, but he grows his kingdom. Let me bring this now to a close with some concluding thoughts here. Just flows right out of these three parables. From the lamp, I just want to challenge you, but I also want to, to remind you that, that we're called to persistence. The light of Christ is never snuffed out, no matter the darkness, no matter the opposition. We, we must, I say we must, we should, we must recognize that the light of Christ will continue to shine. In fact, in many places around the world where there is persecution and there are Christians present, the aftermath of that persecution produces um, a harvest of, of, of souls who find themselves bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a persistence that comes. The light doesn't stop shining. The light of the gospel continues to shine. Jesus Christ still reigns, and he is bright, and his gospel is beautiful, and it needs to go forward. Secondly, from the seed, we're called to patience. We don't always see the fruit. We don't always see the results. But we trust that God is doing what he's doing. We trust that God is accomplishing his purposes through the faithful ministry of his saints. And in spite of those saints, he still accomplishes his purposes. And that's comforting. That's helpful. And then finally here, from the mustard seed, we're called to praise. I mean, just to imagine what God does. How amazing it is that God is doing what he's saying that he's doing that he breaks into places and the people that we think that it's impossible to break into. And yet God does it. And we don't know exactly how. But he does it in spite of our knowledge. He's God. He's building his kingdom. He's bringing it to maturity. He's bringing it to a place where there is going to be a harvest. So these parables are given to us to bring comfort and certainty about the unfolding of God's kingdom. Here we have these, these four parables. This is what it looks like to be a citizen in this kingdom, one who hears the word, one who receives it, and one who bears fruit. Here's what it's like actually in the kingdom. The light will shine. God is steadily growing it in a way that you don't see it. And people will find their refuge in this kingdom. Why? Not because of you, but because of him. It's comforting for us to know. It was going to be comforting for those disciples to hear. Why? Because there were people that were being, I'm going to say, not responding in a positive way. And there are people already in the story of Mark that are out to get Jesus. And so they needed to be comforted. They needed to be counseled. They needed to be encouraged. And they needed to have a certainty about what was happening in the kingdom. It is true for the audience that Mark is writing to, or Peter ultimately using Mark is writing to, and those are the persecuted Christians in Rome. 
They needed to know that the kingdom was far greater than their experience at that point in time. And that God was accomplishing his purposes. And friends, we need to be reminded that the kingdom of God will go forward with power for the glory of God. Now friends, this is, this is a, these are general backdrop truths that help us step into tomorrow with, I want to say, a, a fresh vision, a fresh understanding, without necessarily always looking at all the details, but understanding there is a backdrop at work, and it is powerful because God is behind it. My sinfulness doesn't stop the unfolding of the kingdom, that God accomplishes his purpose in spite of that. But he still calls me to live in such a way where I'm conformed to what it looks like to be a citizen of that kingdom. And he wants to work through obedient children. And he wants to work through his church. And he's called us then to serve him and to be a part of what he is doing. And we get that privilege. And that is comforting. And it's, it's helpful to know of the certainty of what God is doing in the unfolding of his kingdom. Lord, help us today as we ponder these thoughts. We are humbled, first of all, that you would work in such a way by your Holy Spirit to till up the soil of our hearts so that we would be true recipients of that seed of the gospel, that we would be called your children, that we would bear fruit as a result of that union with you. What an amazing reality. But Lord, then as citizens of that kingdom, we are comforted by the certainty that you are at work in building your kingdom and that we get to be a part of it. Lord, help us to to have a fresh perspective that discouragement about the things that are going on in this world may be present because we live it, we hear it, but Lord, at the same time, those discouragements are, 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 are put in the right perspective in light of what you are doing in this world. Lord, we need that. We need that certainty. We need that confidence. We need that focus so that we don't get caught up in the, in the things that really are worldly, the issues of, of, of worldly thinking. But, Lord, we're caught up with the unfolding of your kingdom and the growing of your kingdom and the, the proclamation of the gospel that brings about the furtherance of your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of what is true, what is right, and, Lord, what is truly a reflection of what it means to be one of your children. We ask this now, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.